0: Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We're going to turn our attention to the plight of particularly Christian people who are caught up in the ongoing unrest and military coup in the nation of Myanmar, also known as Burma. You will be able to join in our conversation as we get things underway, and uh, you might have your own thoughts to offer. You might have your own issues at hand when you think of uh, people in other nations who are under levels of persecution of how we might pray as Christian believers. Well, there are concerns that Christian people are gravely imperiled in Myanmar. Most of the images we're seeing in the news are from bigger cities like Yangon. But what has been developing in the ethnic minority states is sparking the great concern. It's the minority states where bombing and burning of villages, killing, torturing, raping of civilians, plundering, exploiting, trafficking and abuse rife. Now, that is perhaps a comment on being rife even before a military coup. You might imagine that things would be intensifying with a military coup in process. Well, the military seized control on the 1st of February following a general election late last year that was won by Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party in a landslide. The military seized power and has now declared a year-long state of emergency. Aung San Suu Kyi is under house arrest and many others of her party officials are also detained. But if the military thought the masses would meekly comply, they were gravely mistaken. Instead, the coup has triggered a crisis as the people rise as one to resist military rule. We're going to unpack some things that are happening in Myanmar today and a special focus on Christian believers who may be, may be caught uh, perhaps here in uh, some sense in crossfire. We'll talk about that with our special guest, Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as director of advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom She's also adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020.
1: Thank you for having me, Neil. Uh,
0: Elizabeth, there are lots of minorities in Myanmar, which is primarily Buddhist, but there are the Rohingya Muslims. Uh, Of course, we're in the headlines in a significant way near the border with Bangladesh, and there are a number of Christian states. As we're starting this conversation, I wonder if we've got a little bit of geography or a little bit of context that we can give for the nation of Myanmar and the importance of talking about this topic today.
1: Uh, Yes, well, that's really important, actually, that people understand the situation on the ground uh, in Myanmar or Burma. I've often referred to Burma as the Sudan of Asia because the situation in Burma has been very much like what what it used to be in Sudan when Omar al-Bashir was there, where you have these Arab Islamists controlling the country from the center, from the capital, and all these different people groups around the periphery some uh, different ethnic groups, different religious groups all around the periphery and it's controlled by uh, supremacists from the centre and the same has happened in Burma. So in Burma you've got the ethnic Bahman or the Burmese who are in the centre of the country around Yangon and of the capital Napidor and Rangoon and then and they are the majority, the ethnic Bahman, and They're Buddhist and the regime is Bahman and Buddhist supremacist very, very much so but all around the periphery you've got different ethnic groups you've got the Karen and the Karenni and the Mon and the Shan and the Kachin and the Chin and, uh, and the Rohingya so you've got all these different people groups around the periphery and um, Adoniram Judson was the pioneer missionary who went into Burma uh, you know, two centuries ago at uh, the same time, Carey went to India, Adoniram Judson went to Burma. And he, he, uh, he evangelized amongst the Karen. And the Karen people are about 30% Christian. The Karen are about 90% Christian. Same with the Kachin, same with the Chin. So all around the periphery are these ethnic nations that are largely Christian or have large Christian minorities in them. Now, at the time that Aung San Suu Kyi's father was ruling Burma, just for a short time, there was a deal made that these people, these groups would have a high degree of autonomy in their ethnic states, the lands where they, that they are, their national lands. But then there was a military coup, the junta took over, and of course the junta from the centre wanted everything centralised and basically what is happening is just like what has happened in Sudan and some other places we could name, where from the center, what they want to do is extract all the resources and take all the wealth while treating the people, uh, like, like dirt. So there's been a long running insurgency, uh, from these various ethnic peoples as they just fight for, fight for their own cultural survival in their own lands around the periphery. And that's why the return of complete military rule is so incredibly threatening for the Christian peoples of Burma.
0: Of course, people on the periphery is where we'll be focusing today because when we're looking at news reports on the television screens, Elizabeth, I guess we're seeing those images that are coming from the big cities And uh, there is an uprising that is going on. And uh, just one BBC report that I picked up this morning ahead of our conversation, uh, where police officers have been fleeing across the border into India. Uh, Lots of different borders in uh, Myanmar, but uh, across the border into India, escaping with fears that they'd be forced to kill or harm civilians. So with the military coup comes this pressure on the police force to harm their own countrymen. Uh, to uh, to uh, harm their own, uh, their own people. And uh, that's a, a challenging thing in itself. And then when you've got uh, Christians and these other minority groups on the outer, then they're the ones who perhaps can be hardest hit by that.
1: Yes, and they're hardest hit for a number of reasons. Uh, one is it because the media is sort of less interested in Christians. They almost are repelled by them. I get the feeling sometimes they're just really not so interested uh, they're very interested in what happens in the big major cities and of course that's where the media uh, is focused and so when you've got uh, situations on the periphery, cities on the peripheries, then the persecution happens in the dark quite a bit and that's where it's most dangerous but I, I must say I was really delighted uh, last night on SBS had a news item on Burma and it was wonderful, but they went. They were in Myitkyina, which is the capital of Kachin State, the northernmost state, which is rich in timber and jade. It's the headwaters of the Irrawaddy River, which China wants to dam for hydroelectricity. And the Burmese military has been uh, bombing and killing the ethnic Kachin, uh, you know, for decades, and particularly since 2011, when they. Uh, broke a ceasefire and declared war against the Kachin again. So things have been really nasty up there. But I was really pleased to see the media take notice of what was happening in uh, Midkina. And do you know what brought it to the media's attention? What brought it to the media's attention was the, the police were out on the street with their riot gear and their weapons and they were shooting and a nun came out in front of them. Uh, a middle-aged nun, and she came out and she was crying, and she stood in front of the of the guns and she begged them not to kill the, the children, not to kill the young people. Her name is Sister Nu, Sister Nu Swung, and she knelt down in front of the guns and begged them not to kill the children. And just uh, also yesterday, although I could have been overnight in our time, there was a similar situation. Where another nun, um, a Sister Rose or Sister, sorry, Sister Anne, Sister Anne knew. No, hang on, I'm getting all my sisters mixed up okay. here. Yep. I'm trying to find her name, the other name of the other nun. I'm sure it's got a Rose in it somewhere. Yep. Uh, she came out. She did the same. She put herself in front of the police and she knelt down on the ground, and she begged them. She said, "Kill me, not them." And two soldiers got down on the ground on their knees in front of her. And, you know, it stopped the killing for a while, but it didn't stop it ultimately. And also, same day, in Kareni State, which is over on the border with Thailand, a Catholic priest and a Protestant pastor went out into the street in front of the guns and put themselves in front of the military and in front of the police and, and begged them, to give them an opportunity to send the people home so that there would be no more bloodshed. And and it worked. And the military actually put their guns away and just, you know, used some water cannon to get the the young people to go back. So the church is really stepping up in the most remarkable way. And that's attracting, uh, attracting attention. And I'm just so, I feel so proud of them. You know, I just feel so proud of this this voiceless church. There's this, there's a video clip of the of the second uh, second nun, uh, and she she talks about you know what she did, and then she breaks down and she weeps and she weeps into her hands, and she said, "There's no one to help us. There's no one here to help us." And I just feel so proud of her courage and um, we need to be praying for the church all all through Burma because these are really dark and dangerous days.
0: Well, it's a little sideline to the conversation, uh, but let's say in this sense, uh, thank God that there are still some of the denominational churches that have uh, religious symbolism and even religious garments uh, that actually can be seen when there is a press report like this, because I imagine that when you identify that's a Christian standing in front of those soldiers and she's wearing a nun's habit uh, or those sorts of identifying clothes that we might say, well, uh, thank God that there are some who want to identify as Christian and uh, what sort of courage can we actually uh, just uh, just honour in such an amazing way when they'll stand up against a military onslaught. Uh, so, uh, Elizabeth, we'll keep going. I won't get your comment on that, but we'll keep going in just a few moments. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Good to have you with us. We're talking about the coup in Myanmar, Burma and the plight of Christians in that nation, one 800 If you'd like to join in our conversation today, you can also respond to that Facebook question at facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio. How do you think Aussies should pray for Christian brothers and sisters caught up in the military coup in Myanmar? Uh, before we move on, Elizabeth, let's take a call. Uh, Adriana is on the line from Redcliffe in Queensland. Hello, Adriana. Welcome. Hello. Adriana, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I'll just give a brief history because I was volunteering in Myanmar for four months and I stayed in the southernmost tip of Myanmar at MIAC. And there is horrific poverty there. Children love to learn English. They want to get ahead to help their families. The poverty is unimaginable. And I think, as in the third world countries, everyone is trying to get a better life. And those who work for the military, they're trying to do their best for their families. I don't condone with them what they're doing, but it is survival of the prison. But in saying that, I know the, um, I was in a Catholic school there teaching the children and they were ever so grateful for me teaching on a, on a volunteer basis to Palms Australia and um, every minute they, they want to learn, they want to learn because they want to get ahead in life, they want to help their family. Adriana. Yeah.
0: Wonderful hearing your comments there. Uh, poverty widespread in so many parts of Myanmar. Children want to learn. And uh, when you've got someone like Adriana, who's like a Christian missionary, going in there and uh, doing her a little bit to help uh, that learning process go along because people want a better life. Of course, when a military coup comes along, uh, that disrupts everything. And Elizabeth, I wonder if you've got a thought or two for Adriana.
1: Yes, well, that's a wonderful story, Adriana, and um, well done for giving of yourself uh, for the betterment of others. That's, that's what it means to follow Christ. Um, and yes, the poverty is appalling, and this is all part of it, you see. The thing is that the military has been in power for so long, and the military has um, established itself so deeply, rooted itself so deeply into Burma uh, economically that it stands to lose a lot if it is not uh, in power or able to, even if it's not in in sort complete power. If it can't, if it can't, I don't know the word, dominate the government. If it can't get its way, it's very much like the situation, as I said, in Sudan, where you've got, uh, where you've had for decades, essentially a quasi-military regime. Um, uh, a power, you know, the military comes to power through a coup, installs one of its, you know, generals as a as a president, and then maintains control. And so, is able to suck the wealth out of the country, and the people stay poor, and the and the military gets rich, and it's making money from from mining, from trafficking, from everything. We have a similar situation uh, with the military in Indonesia. Which which extracts enormous wealth for itself for from West Papua. It, it will never voluntarily leave West Papua uh, because the Indonesian military makes so much money in West Papua. And one of the reasons these countries are poor and these regions are poor is because the military itself makes so much money, and because so much money is then spent keeping the military. Uh, dominant and and in the wars that they fight. I mean, the military, uh, the Burmese military, the Tatmadaw has been fighting wars all around the periphery for so long, and they do it so that they can extract the resources. Um, they want resources without the people. They take over the land so that they can grow opium. They control telecommunications and everything. So this is why the people get sick of it, you see, that people are just sick of this sort of corruption. It's the same thing that's happening in Algeria, where the people are are protesting weekly to say, we're sick of this sort of quasi-military regime, where the military enriches itself at our expense. And that's why the people are voting for the National League for Democracy, uh, which won narrowly in 2015, but won decisively in November 2020. And the military realized that its days were numbered that with this sort of majority in parliament, the National League for Democracy would continue to uh, demilitarize the country, demilitarize the region, put the military back in the barracks. They were going to lose control. And that's why they took control in a military coup
0: and the people suffer and especially those as we've been saying around the periphery, those in those minority states. Adriana, thank you so much for sharing your story our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316 as an Aussie, how do you think you're to be prayerful about brothers and sisters in a place like Myanmar which is under this military coup right now. Uh, Elizabeth, when we talk about how this happened and why this happened because in the history of Myanmar, the military has held the uh, government uh, uh, for many long years, and of course uh, all of the issues around Aung San Suu Kyi and her coming to power, that's been a big contentious uh, controversy for a long, long time. And it looks as though this latest coup uh, is because there was such a landslide election uh, in favour of Aung San Suu Kyi and the military losing any power that they had. What are your thoughts for this reasoning as to why the coup?
2: Yes, that's
1: exactly why the coup happened. So um, from what I've been able to read, it became, you know, it was clear in November, by mid-November, that the National League for Democracy had uh, increased its representation significantly. Now, the military is guaranteed 25% of seats in parliament. And because it also has its own political party, it can often uh, have a real significant input, uh, both its own seats and its parties, its political wings seats. It can have great influence. But The National League for Democracy has taken uh, many, many seats away from the military's party, the Union of Solidarity and Development, meaning they were just not going to have the same clout. And, And, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, I believe she's actually been really badly treated by the West. So she's been playing a long game. And she knew right from the beginning that, uh, working with the 2008 Constitution, which was written by the military to keep itself very much empowered, meant that she was walking on eggshells. She was on a tightrope the whole time, and uh, she was playing a long game. Now, now that she's actually, now that her party's actually won such a landslide, the military just have decided they have to get rid of her. So I think what they're going to do is they're going to charge her with a criminal offence. They'll find her guilty. It'll just be rubber stamped by some, you know, compliant uh, courts and she'll be ineligible so uh, to run again. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see what does happen in 12 months' time because I think that people are not going to vote for the military no matter what they do with Aung San Suu Kyi.
0: Okay. Well, at the moment, I think she's uh, under uh, arrest and uh, being held because of uh, something to do with uh, holding some walkie-talkies. Sounds a little bit odd (laughs) to me, but uh, look, we're not far out from news. Let's take another call. Julie is on the line from Queensland. Hello, Julie, welcome.
1: Oh, hello. Elizabeth, you mentioned West Papua. The Lord has been placing those beautiful people on my heart so much. Again, in fact, for years... The dearest friend I ever had came from that nation and he's no longer with us but I still remember and pray for his people and it was good to hear you speaking of what the truth of what's happening over there Mm. and I've been wondering what's going on with the coronavirus. Um, Are the people suffering with the illness?
0: Uh, Julie, we're a little bit off track there, but uh, Elizabeth, you might have a response. And uh, West Papua, which doesn't get much airplay, but we have had a number of segments, uh, even with Elizabeth on West Papua. But uh, Elizabeth, are you aware of anything that uh, developments for there for for Julie's question?
1: Uh, i not. I know that Indonesia has had a, a lot of difficulty keeping up with you know hospitalisations and everything. You don't get much news out of West Papua. I think they're probably managing it reasonably well. Um, You know, uh, I think the fact of the matter is that coronavirus kills people who are usually very old and already very sick. And if you look at the situation in the West, we have such a long life expectancy. That we were prone to be more vulnerable to it than most third world countries that have a life expectancy of like 40 and 45. Everyone who's going to die is already dead quite young. So they don't have the same health uh, issues of, of geriatrics with multiple uh, comorbidities that we have in the West. So I don't think they're suffering quite the same way that, you know, Italy and France and other countries and America. Uh, has, have been suffering. But uh, they don't have the same hospital situation either. So, uh, yes, we should be praying for, for them regarding the, the health of the community. Elizabeth,
0: here. I'll need to cut in. Uh, Elizabeth, let's talk about the coup leader here uh, who has quite a reputation and uh, his name is Senior General Min Ong Lang. Uh, you've got some insights into him and his character and the way he conducts himself. Uh, what are your thoughts for the coup leader?
1: Uh, well, Benedict Rogers, who is a, an expert on Burma, and he he is um, uh, he is Christian Solidarity Worldwide's primary uh, advisor and advocate on on Burma and Southeast Asia. Uh, he really believes that. It's even bigger than money. So it's even bigger than the military's control of 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 mining and telecommunications. He believes that uh, General Min Ong is actually highly ambitious and would and desires to be the president of Burma himself. So I think there's quite a few people who expect that the uh, when they do hold elections in 12 months' time, Aung San Suu. Kyi She will have been disqualified and everything will be rigged so that um, he might even take off his uniform so that he can be elected president uh, of of Burma. So he believes that that there's quite a lot of personal ambition involved as well.
0: There might be some common things that we could identify with people who might want to assume a position of dictatorship leader. Uh, does he, do you think, fit some of those sorts of character, trait, uh, ways that we could be able to identify him? Is he little like that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you're looking, you're looking at megalomania, a desire to be the ruler, a desire to be in control. You're looking at greed a desire to keep your hands on all the the, uh, the revenue that can come in and all the wealth that can be extracted. So this is about power and greed. And look, there are quite a lot of people who would fit into that into that sort of role. He's just someone who has the ability to, to, to grab it. He's the top of the military and uh, he's got the ability to reach out and take it and he has done so. And um, I don't think it's going to be a very easy thing to get rid of him.
0: Uh, Let's just tread, I guess, carefully here. But when we talk about uh, Myanmar and the military, it is a Buddhist military. I I wonder whether that's just a title that is given to a military that might be made up of all sorts of different makes and sizes of people and things that they might believe. And I know there'll be good and bad in every military, but... I wonder whether there's any reflection on the idea that there is a brutal military coup uh, that is happening. It is considered to be a Buddhist military coup. There are other religious minorities that we're talking about, and we are talking about the Christian minorities too and how badly they're treated. But what are your thoughts for the religious ways that a military might be formed or might behave Uh, given that there might be some contrast in the way that we think about a Christian-based style way of looking at military ethics. Any thoughts here, Elizabeth?
1: Well, I think what what you're seeing here is what happens when uh, political ambition and religious nationalism uh, become involved in the whole subject. So we see the same sort of thing in Sri Lanka you have Buddhist nationalists in control. And this is very political. It's not just about Buddhism. It's about the ideology that the nation must be Buddhist and that the Buddhists must dominate, that everything is done for the Buddhists and for Buddhism. So in Sri Lanka, the whole idea is that Sri Lanka... Uh, is, is, the nation, is a Buddhist nation. And so the military uh, and, and, and the people, the monks and everything, are very Buddhist nationalists. And that, that is a trigger for persecution because then Christians become essentially enemies of the state rather than fellow citizens. They start to become viewed as a fifth element, as a, as a threat to power. And we see the same in, like, India with Hindu nationalism. I mean, Hindus don't care what you believe. Hindus don't care if you have one god or, or 50 gods or if Jesus is your saviour. You know, they're actually quite open to talking about these things. But they do care about caste, especially if they're high caste, if they're Brahmins. And so Hindu nationalism is very much a political ploy. It's got more to do with politics than religion. And what it does is it dragnets the votes of the majority. So in India, it's the Hindus. In Sri Lanka and in Burma, it's the Buddhists. It dragnets their votes by playing the religion card. Uh, But it's all for power. It's not actually...
0: Religion. It's not for (laughs) religion. And uh, what you get is the political drive that wants Mm -hmm. to politically silence its opposition, but then when it takes. Uh, a, things to a new level. Uh, when things go beyond the idea of a political uh, challenge, uh, then you get to the point where you want to then eliminate your enemies. And so you not only do you silence them, but you arrest them. And then the next thing, of course, is that you eliminate them. And that's, uh, that's something, I guess, uh, there would be some, uh, some historic uh, ways that you could say these things happen typically when you've got this sort of military coup
1: Oh yes, and I mean, just look at Turkey. When Turkey decided it would be Turkish nationalist, they eliminated the uh, they, they were set out to eliminate the Armenians. I mean, this is a really dangerous thing. And the other thing that <clears throat> that, that is important about the religious element is that in uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, like in Hindu nationalist India, uh, there isn't a doctrine of of Human beings being created by God in the image of God uh, for, for the purpose of relationship with God. So the whole value of human life is completely different. Um, the whole concept of karma—that if you're, you know, if you're born in the gutter, well, that's because the universe put you there—and <laughs> who am I to interfere with the justice of the universe? Whereas Christianity and the Judeo-Christian worldview is quite different. And it says that human beings have this inherent dignity because they were created by God. They are owned by God. Um, If I was to go out and, and beat someone up, that would enrage God because the human being is valuable and loved in his sight. So... Christianity is very different. If you don't have that worldview that puts a really high view on human life or high value on human life, then why not just, if you want to get rid of them, you can dehumanize them and then you can scrub them out like cockroaches and take their land. It's the Judeo-Christian worldview that uniquely puts this incredibly high value on human life that makes the difference. And, you know, as I mentioned in Kareni State, when the police came out against the the protesters, the pastor, the Protestant pastor and the priest, Catholic priest that came out and stood in front of guns, they said, we don't want bloodshed because every life is precious. Well, that's the Judeo-Christian worldview. And if you don't have it, then you can go into very dark places, indeed.
0: Wow. And uh, some great insight in what you're sharing, Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, We've got some response uh, to our question, how do you think Aussies should pray for Christian brothers and sisters caught up in the military coup in Myanmar? Mike, in... Uh, Mike says, our ideal is the command in Hebrews to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. There is a sense here, uh, here we are feeling as though we're safe and sound in little old Australia. uh, But uh, as Christians, we're not just bound to one nation our brothers and sisters who are suffering in other nations, they also need our prayers, need our support. Uh, what are your thoughts for someone like Mike who's uh, who's talking about that command in Hebrews?
1: What a great quote. Isn't that a wonderful quote, that passage from Hebrew- Hebrews? Thank you, Mike. Um, yes, absolutely. We need to start realising that, and, and this is a powerful truth. It's not It's one of these things often wonder why churches don't make more of it. We need to remember that we are part of an enormous body. We are not just our local congregation. We are not just the Victorian church or the Australian church. We are part of a global body of Christians and that is not just, it doesn't exist just today, but stretches right back through through time. And that's one thing I love about uh, the, the great hall of fame passage in Hebrews 11 too, and why it's important to, to, to remember Christian history, to remember the Reformation, to sing some of the old great hymns from the 17th century. We have a, a heritage that goes back deep through time, and we are part of a body that stretches right over the whole earth. And so when you feel small as a Christian, And you think, oh, no one in my family shares my faith and no one in my class or my workplace shares my faith. Oh, how empowering it is and how encouraging it is to remember what you are part of. The church that Jesus Christ has been building for 2000 years. Part of that, that great, that great body that will stand before the Lamb. And uh, of all nations, people, tribes and tongues and stand before the Lamb and sing, you know, glory to the Lamb. And we are part of something enormous. So, and this is one of the high values about praying for the persecuted church. These are my brothers and sisters. And I quite often like to use that language in the prayer boards. So I'm very concerned, for example, about the plight of a, a Qin Christian man who has been appointed by, uh, by the government that has not been allowed to take power, the, the National League for Democracy uh, government. Now he's been appointed as the government's representative before the United Nations and the rest of the world. And his name is Dr. Safa. And he's a Christian from the Qin ethnic minority, which is virtually all Christian. Now, his life is in danger. I really believe that, and I want everyone to know that he is their Christians. That is to he that he's their brother, well, just, their brother. Let's
0: just is uh, in danger. get a, a little bit of a focus here on Doctor Sasa, because it seems to me that if we're talking about how we might pray for brothers and sisters in Myanmar, out of crisis can come defeat or can come opportunity. And so what you're saying here is that there is someone, his name is Dr. Sasso, who in fact is leading what we could imagine to be something of a parliament in exile and uh, he will actually have an opportunity to represent uh, his nation before the United Nations. So talk to us a little here about Dr. Sasser, Elizabeth, and the opportunity that is created. But as you say, his life is in danger because of the military coup and because of the motivations of the military junta in charge in Myanmar. Uh, what about Dr. Sasser? Yes,
1: well, he is a, a strong Christian. He has... Uh, he, he There's a wonderful... Um, uh, there's a on on my religious liberty monitoring site. I've written about him, and there are links there to um, Benedict Rogers' account of how this this man this you know was born in poverty-stricken Chin State, you know where the poverty was just absolutely extreme, as we've already heard uh, Adriana talk about. And uh, he grew up as a little boy in this poverty, and he was illiterate. But people saw that he was clever. And so people gathered around, and these would be Christian people because the, the state and the Chin people are virtually all Christian. and they raised money to send him to school in Yangon. And he went to school, and he did brilliantly, and he came back to his uh, home uh, Qin state, and he looked at the poverty, and he thought, oh, this just cannot be. You know, this is terrible. Uh, all this poverty and no one to care for anyone, so he went off and and got degrees and became a, a doctor and came back and started a medical uh, charity in Chin State, and um and uh, it's called Health and Hope, his medical charity. So this is a strongly Christian man. Uh, I have a link there to the uh, to a, an interview he did with Eric Metaxas uh, just last year or 2019. And uh, he's a godly man. And he is now being uh, chosen by what is being called the committee representing uh, the assembly. So it's a bit like a, a parliament in exile. He represents them now before the UN and the world community. So, yes, he's in danger of being assassinated, I would suggest. And he is our brother. He is my brother. He is your brother. And he is speaking for many peoples in Burma who are Christians. The people he comes from, the Chin people, they are a Christian people who have long suffered uh, marginalization and poverty and persecution. And he needs to be in our prayers, just like the Chin people and the Kachin and the Karenian, the Karen and others. Uh, We need to be praying for them.
0: Wow. Lots of things to keep in your prayers when it comes to the nation of Myanmar. Looking at plotting a way forward, Elizabeth, and things that we might keep perhaps before God in the courts of the Lord in our prayers... Uh, the sorts of things that perhaps uh, an Australian uh, government might do, or global governments, as they're looking at how things are unfolding. Uh, how do you think things might proceed, and uh, with the idea of you know suspension from various uh, governmental uh, groups and such things, uh, sanctions? Uh, arms embargoes, all sorts of things like that. How do you think things might move forward or are there some ways that we might be able to think about, about solutions?
1: Well, I think it's really, really important, particularly for those who are suffering in Burma, that human rights-affirming nations like Australia stand up and speak, you know, the truth to say what is right and what is good and to stand with the people. Having said that, I don't think there's a lot that anyone can really do. Um, And and the reason for that is because Burma or Myanmar is absolutely integral to the Chinese Communist Party's Belt Road Initiative. It's integral to it. And China is uh, in the process of building road and rail and and everything to go through Burma down to the water where they will build build a massive port. Um, So... China is very, very keen and is already investing massively in Burma. And one of the big issues for the Kachin people is that China wants the junta to dam the Irrawaddy, flood all their their, uh, farmlands, and then send all the hydropower to China. And the thing is that what can you do? What can you do? What can the government do when China is ready to fill in all the gaps financially, to build all the infrastructure, to pour in all the money, and to back the junta every step of the way? What, what can the UN do? Who's going to go to war in Burma against China? It's not going to happen. What we need is for God to do something you know, the, the way God does, completely out of left field, something no one's ever thought of, for God to intervene, for God's glory. And I think the thing that we pray for is that God will redeem all suffering and everything for his glory. He can redeem this to expose the, the evils of greed, uh, the, the evils of it, and he can use it to expose the beauty of of Christianity, with its high value on human life, so God can redeem this for His glory. Uh, I don't think we should put our faith in the UN or the West or or ASEAN or anything, because um, this this requires an intervention from God. God is the only one who can change this. And praise God through the cross of Jesus Christ, He opened, He tore the curtain in half so we could enter into his courts and we could bring the people of Burma and the nation of Burma before him.
0: Wow. Well, there's a lot more to the Easter story and the impact on today's politics than most people will appreciate. And uh, just as you reflect back to what it is that empowers the uh, way that God's kingdom advances, uh, it comes right back to the cross of Christ and Mm. uh, the need for divine intervention in order to overcome or to be a circuit breaker in the challenging times that are faced in Myanmar. Uh, the idea of an uprising and it draws to the, the attention, uh, the media uh, of the world and people's attention is drawn to the challenges that are faced within a nation like Myanmar. Uh, I guess there's not much chance that people power can prevail when you've got this pressure coming from China as part of their Belt and Road initiative, uh, wanting to build their own channels through Burma uh, to link with ports. Uh, Challenging times ahead, the global community uh, is going to need divine wisdom to be able to uh, break through in this area. Elizabeth Kendall, we have come to an end to our conversation and I know that listeners might like to pursue some more. Uh, you mentioned your Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and I'll tell listeners they can link to that at your website, elizabethkendall.com and you'll be able to read articles and some insights that you might not get anywhere else about how as a Christian believer you might be equipped to pray into the situations That are happening in places like Myanmar. ElizabethKendall.com. Now, Elizabeth Kendall is an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. My encouragement check out the Canberra based. Christian Faith and Freedom. Elizabeth serves as Director of Advocacy for that organisation, which deals with issues around the persecuted church. She's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. You might want to check out what sort of courses and subjects they have on offer to increase your own understanding when it comes to issues around persecution of Christian believers around the world. Elizabeth's written a number of books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah speaks to Christians today and biblical response there to persecution and existential threat and also her other book, Saturday After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall, always so uh, engaging to be able to hear your insights into what's happening. And I look forward to our next opportunity to get together on uh, whatever topic and whatever subject, whichever nation we'll be focusing on. But ElizabethKendall.com. And Elizabeth, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020.
1: And thank you for the opportunity, Neil.